I want to welcome everybody to the master's class here at Life Change Church. Life Change Church. And we are in the book of Genesis, chapters 23, and we're going to get through most of chapter 24, not, all, not quite all of it. Uh, you know, I told you a while back that there's two ways of uh, teaching these lessons. One is to take one verse and totally tear it apart and give the theological uh, meaning of that, of that verse. And then there's telling the story. And the book of Genesis has a lot of telling the story. Today we're going to tell a story. And so we're going to cover a lot of different verses. And we're going to cover two significant events in the life of Abraham. We've been studying the life of Abraham for several weeks now. I'm probably going to be in the, uh, uh, with Abraham for at least a couple more weeks. I don't know what I'm going to teach next week, but you know, wherever the Lord leads, that's where I'll be. And we've got two events in the life of Abraham that we're going to cover. And the first is the death of his wife, Sarah. And the second is Abraham arranging a wife for Isaac. Abraham arranging a wife for Isaac. Now, in chapter 23, with the death of Sarah, we're given a chance to see Abraham's testimony of faith in one of the most trying times that we face as humans on this earth, and that is the death of a loved one. It is certainly where we as Christians should stand out as different from the non-believers in, in this world. And then in chapter 24, we're going to cover the details of Abraham's servant returning to Abraham's people to find a bride for Isaac. Chapter 24 is the longest chapter in the entire book of Genesis. And every detail of this beautiful love story speaks of Christ and his bride, the church. And I want you to keep that in mind as we're done. We're going to talk about all kinds of types as we go through this. And this should not be surprising because Paul tells us in Ephesians that marriage is intended to mirror the relationship of Christ in the church. Everybody agree with that? Everybody understand that? Yeah. So now, our study over the last uh, few weeks has been one of powerful types or symbols or portraits that point toward other significant events involving God the Father, God the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, in Genesis 22, we saw Isaac going to Mount Moriah as the father's beloved son, obedient unto death, even to the death of sacrifice. And in Genesis 23, we will see the death of Sarah, who is a type or a symbol of the changes that took place in Israel's status once the church was introduced into human affairs. And in Genesis 24, we're going to see Rebekah, who is a type of the church as the bride of Isaac, being brought into the very tent of Sarah. And the whole chapter, while it's interesting and full of local tradition and culture of the time, is at the same time a full-length study of the way in which the Father's beloved Son obtained His bride, the church. And we're talking about how Jesus obtained His bride, the church. And this is all a picture of that. So, let's begin our lesson today with the death of Sarah. And we're in Genesis chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. And Sarah was 107 and 20 years old. And there, uh, these were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kerjath Arba, 
the same as Hebron, which is a city in Palestine, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now, for almost 60 years, Abraham has been wandering through the promised land, and he's always been accompanied by his faithful and loving wife, Sarah. Abraham greatly loved his wife. Even his two tragic mistakes were centered around her and were dictated by what he considered to be in her best interest. He was wrong, but that was his motives behind it. Now she was dead. And Sarah had lived to be 127 years old, which means at the time of her death, Isaac was about 37 years old. And we're told that Sarah died in Kirjoth Arba, which is the city of Hebron. And it is interesting to note that Abraham, as a wanderer and a pilgrim in the land of God uh, that, he, that he had been given, did not even own a place to bury his dead. He didn't own any land at all. And so he had to buy a cave in which to bury his wife, Sarah in. Now, why didn't he take Sarah someplace else to bury her? I mean, why did he choose this place? It is because the hope they have of the future is in that land. This means that this is the land where God had promised them their seed will become a great nation in. And that is where they want to be buried. So notice that we are told that Abraham came to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now, did you know that there is nothing wrong with a believer shedding tears over the tragedies and heartaches of life? There's not. God has not promised us a life free of tragedy and heartache, nor is it a lack of faith to show sorrow at the loss of a loved one. I mean, Jesus himself wept at the tomb of Lazarus. But there is to be something different in the tears of a believer. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Now Abraham knew something that a person without a personal relationship with the Almighty God doesn't know. Abraham knew the hope of everlasting life in a city built by God. Hebrews 11.10 says, For he, being Abraham, looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So beyond all the earthly blessings of this world lies the hope of the promises of our God. That's our hope. Romans 5.2, By whom also... We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, not only do we right now have the presence of God freely with us, there is much, much, much more to look forward to. We can actually rejoice in hope. So along with peace and access to grace, hope is a benefit of justification is a benefit of justification. And to uh, define hope, hope looks to the future and gives meaning to the present. Paul wrote in Romans 8, 24, that hope that is seen is not hope. And this future, this heavenly hope, includes believers' glorified bodies and the eternal joys of heaven. That is our future hope that is promised 
to us by God in his word. And hope means a favorable and confident expectation or future certainty that has no element of chance or faith in it. Now you'll notice I'm giving you a, a full description here. I don't just give you a few words because I want you guys to be able to pull this out later and have a definition of hope that won't depend on me telling you, okay? That's why you're getting a lot of details here. All right? So in the Bible, the word hope stands for both the act of hoping and the things hoped for. Hope does not arise from an individual's desires or wishes, but from God, who is himself the believer's hope. Psalms 39, 7 tells us that my hope is in you, and it speaks of our God that gives us our hope. Hope distinguishes the Christian from the unbeliever, who has no hope. Indeed, a Christian is one in whom hope resides. Christian hope comes from God and especially his calling, his grace, his word, and his gospel. Hope is directed towards Christ and God, and its appropriate objects are eternal life, salvation, righteousness, the glory of God, the appearing of Christ, and the resurrection from the dead. These are all the promises that we have given to us. We can rejoice or boast in a godly sense, not the human sense, that we will share God's glory. And that is possible by His grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So, any questions about the definition of hope? This is not something that is a wish or a desire. It is something that we have a foundation for. It is a known hope. So as sinners, we have fallen short of the glory of God and are doomed to spend an eternity in hell without God. As believers, we have God's promise of a future glory in heaven with Him. Our future is safe and secure. Our hope is secure. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 says, Now our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. And Hebrews 6, 18 through 19 says, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation to have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. So if there is one time in a believer's testimony that should shine the brightest in a dark world of sin, it is when death visits the home. And Abraham grieved for Sarah, but Abraham knew where she was and knew that after he died, he was going to join her in heaven, praising the God that he had faithfully served. That's the difference between us and the unbeliever. This is just another example of Abraham's faith in action is the way he grieved and the way he had hope with Sarah's death. Amen? Amen. All right, so next we move on to the topic of a bride for Isaac. And we move to chapter 24, verse 1. And Abraham was old <laughs> and well stricken in age. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Now, Notice that God tells us that Abraham was old and well stricken in age. 
Now, this is interesting, and it's an interesting phrase because the Jews divided old age into three stages. All right? From 60 to 70 was what they called the commencement of old age. The commencement of, between 60 and 70 is the commencement, or the start, of getting old. That's about right, right? Yeah, that's about right. You start feeling, I started feeling old uh, when I turned 60 and, and so forth. And uh, I'm really feeling old now. From 70 to 80, yeah, from, wait till we get to the, wait, we're going to get to you guys here in just a minute. All right? So from 70 to 80 was what they called the hoary-headed age. <laughs> hoary-headed age. Now, the word hoary means overused, old, and stale from overuse. Now, isn't that, isn't that a wonderful description? Yeah, hoary-headed. Now, there is a saying that I, I like that goes along with this, and that is, it's not the years, it is the mileage that counts, right? It's not the years, it's the mileage that counts. And let me tell you, when I worked, they ran me all over the world. I, I have miles on me and miles and miles, but uh, that's okay. It's not the years, it's the mileage that counts. So that's from 70 to 80. And the word hoary means white with age. And it describes hair that has become white or gray with age. And it also means covered with pale hairs. Covered with pale hairs, or it describes something that is covered with gray or white hairs. Now, I can't help you guys that don't have any hair up there at all. You know, there you go, yeah. Uh, but uh, I don't think you're quite to the uh, 70 to 80 stage yet. So, yeah. Then here, here we go. After 80, a man or a woman is said to be well stricken in years. Well stricken in years. So now, I, I, I'm, should I, I, if you want to volunteer, how many of y'all are well stricken in years? Oh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> so Abraham was now 140 years of age, about at this time. And he would certainly fall into the category of well-stricken in years. And this means that Isaac would have been about 40 years old at this time. So he's about 40 years old. And the verses tell us that Abraham finally decided it was time to seek out a bride for his son at 40 years old. Now, don't ask me why he thought he should wait so long, uh, but he did. Now, but when you think about it, waiting that long could prevent a lot of people from making a mistake by choosing a mate when they are young and foolish. All right? Uh, there are some advantages to old age and wisdom, right? Now, I will say there's a disadvantage in trying to raise young kids because chasing toddlers when you're 40 and 50 years old ain't real fun. Uh, let, let me tell you, I did, I did not have the strength at 40 and 50 to be chasing toddlers, uh, but there are some advantages to waiting uh, until later on. Now, Abraham must have looked around him at the lives of the people living in Canaan and saw a worldly people mired in some of the worst kinds of idolatry. There could be no thought of Isaac marrying a daughter from one of these families. Now, in the same way, the Bible gives us some definite instructions about the marriage of believers. And it tells us that there is to be no marriage with an unbeliever. There is to be no marriage between a believer and an unbeliever. A great deal of heartbreak and pain and sorrow 
can be avoided if we heed the commands of God's Word in choosing a mate. I'm talking about what happens when you start choosing the mate. We can, uh, we'll talk about this other stuff in a second. Okay? But 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. God's pretty plain there, right? For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? And Deuteronomy 7.3-4 through 4 is even stronger. Neither shalt thou take marriages with them, thy daughters shalt... Thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. So will the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and destroy thee suddenly. That's pretty strong. Now to be unequally yoked to an unbeliever means that the believer is often required to compromise on many important aspects of their Christian life. You start thinking about it. the things such as giving tithes and offerings, the attending a worship service and a Bible study, raising children to, to know the Lord, and especially how you live your social life and the friends that you allow into your lives together. The life of a believer is really, when you think about it, totally alien to that of the unbeliever. You think differently than the unbeliever does, you, and your priorities are at opposite polar ends of, this, of the spectrum. Not just a little bit different, but radically different. There is no common ground between a believer and an unbeliever without compromise of your Christian faith. And compromise is not allowed by God in His commandments. I can't say it any clearer than that. Now, Unfortunately, for the sake of time, the subject of what happens when you've already made the mistake of marrying an unbeliever, or if one of the parties becomes saved after they are married, that's a topic for uh, another time that I'm going to save for another lesson. I've got a, another whole lesson that uh, being uh, married to an alien is the title of it. You can find out on my podcast if you want to listen to it. But that's about what it's like, being married to an alien, right? And, and so... What was Abraham to do? What could Abraham do to find a bride for his son if he could not do it in the land that they were living in? So his thoughts must have turned back to Haran where his own testimony had begun. Uh, Genesis 24, verses 2 through 3, and it says, And Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh. And I will make thee swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell. Now, notice the placing of the hand under the thigh is the message that they use to take oaths by at this time. It's kind of a different way of doing things, but uh, that's the way they did it, right? It would be akin to our placing our hand on the Bible, although... If I really think about it, I have never really understood why placing my hand on the Bible would make any difference to me. If I believe in the power of God and His judgment upon the lie, then I will not tell a lie whether my hand is on the Bible or not, right? And if I don't believe in the power of God, then it really doesn't make any difference to me whatsoever if I put my hand on that Bible. So I've never really understood it, but it's symbolic, and you know that's just the way it is. It helps people understand the gravity of what they are doing, right? 
But this placing of the hand under the thigh is the method that was used in Abraham's day. Verses 4 through 7. But thou shalt go unto my country, to my kindred, and take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me into this land. Or essentially, what happens if this woman's not willing to follow me? Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from whence thou camest? And Abraham said unto him, Beware thou that thou bring not my son thither again. Try to say that five times fast. Now, the Lord God of heaven, which took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, and that swore unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land, and he shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. So the servant is given the task of going to a far-off land, choosing a bride for Isaac, and then trying to convince her and her family of letting her go off to a land that she has never seen, with a man she has never met before, and then to marry a man that she has never met. Now, while this might have been considered within the bounds of the customs of the day, it was still a tremendous task for a servant to undertake. And he had the obvious question. He asked, Peradventure, the woman will not be willing to follow me into this land. Must I needs bring thy son again into the land from whence thou camest? Now, obviously, the servant felt that it would be a whole lot easier if Isaac came with him so that he could get a, a look at the girl and the girl could get a look at him, and his chance of success would be a whole lot greater than going by himself, at least by our standards, right? By the world's standards. Yet Abraham was firm in his response. Under no circumstances was the servant to take Isaac from the land that God had promised as a blessing to him. So why would this have been the answer? because this is the land that God had separated Abraham unto. This is the land that Abraham and his seed were to remain in. And if you remember, how, when did Abraham get into trouble? When he left the land and went down into Egypt, right? And we're going to see a, a lot later here, not a lot later, but some later here, the trouble that Jacob gets into when he tries to run from God and leaves the promised land. So that's why he doesn't want Isaac to leave. Abraham has learned that trusting in the power of God is better than trusting in our own ability to find a solution to our problems in the ways of the world. So God will be the one choosing the maid. And Abraham tells a servant to trust in the leadership of God. He tells him that God shall send his angel before thee, and thou shalt take a wife unto my son from thence. So in other words, you can count on God. He's going to lead you. God has promised me this. You will find a wife and bring her back. So Abraham's dependent on God rather than on our worldly methods. So this is Abraham's faith in action. He's learned to depend on God. Abraham was not taking a leap in the dark. This was not just a hope that God would get it done right. For faith is not a leap in the dark at all. Our faith must rest on the Word of God. The promises of God that we have faith on are not unknown. They are contained in His Word. Abraham had the words of God to have faith on. He tells the servant, God has promised me that through my seed Isaac, He is going to bring a blessing unto the world. You can be sure of one thing, 
God has a bride to bring back here for Isaac. Now, it is by knowing that the Bible is the Word of God that our faith can be based on knowledge. It is not some mystery that we cannot know. Therefore, our faith rests upon the Word of God. That is why it is so important that we believe in the inerrancy of the Word of God. For if it is not infallible, then we have nothing to base our faith on. Amen? That was pretty weak. Amen. Amen? Amen. Uh, all right. Don't go to sleep on me. I know this is a long story, but don't go to sleep on me here. All right? So our faith is not foolishness. It rests upon something. It is always reasonable. It is not betting your life on this or that will happen. It's not a gamble. It is a sure thing. And Abraham was absolutely sure that God had a plan and that he was going to have a bride for Isaac. Verses 8 and 9. And if the woman will not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my oath, meaning that the servant would be released from completing this oath if she refused to come. Only bring not my son thither again. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swear to him concerning that matter. So here we have Abraham. He sends his servant out to find a bride for his son. As I said earlier, this is symbolic of the eternal God deciding from the foundations of the world that he would send out the Holy Spirit as his servant to find a bride for his son, Jesus Christ. One fit for him, one capable of reigning with him, and he sent the Holy Spirit into the world to find that bride, but he did not do it until Calvary paved the way. Ephesians 1, 3 through 4 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he had chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. All right, and so let's see what the wondrous servant does in verse 10. And the servant took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed, for all the goods of his master were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia unto the city of Nahor. Now, notice that the servant here is unnamed. Now, based on the information that's given to us in verse 2, we can guess that it was Eleazar of Damascus, but the text doesn't really tell us that at all. So this silence about his name is really characteristic of other examples of work of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. It is the delight of the Holy Spirit to draw attention to who? Not to himself, but to the Son, Jesus Christ, rather than to himself. And certainly the type fits here with an unnamed servant. So in God's purposes, the execution of the divine will be entrusted to the Holy Spirit, or is entrusted to the Holy Spirit. He was, it was he who came at Pentecost to begin the great work of seeking out for Christ his blood-bought bride. And that's the church, of course. And in our chapter here, the servant always acted in accordance with the will of Abraham and with the interest of Isaac in mind, just as the Holy Spirit always acts with Jesus and the will of the Father in mind. Now, as I said in the introduction, this whole chapter is actually full of types or symbols of the relationship of Christ to the church. And here I got a whole lot more detailed again in the handout to give you guys the full description of all these types. 
And again, a type is a portrait of a future event, a future person or a future event. So when I say the word type, that's what I'm talking about. It's a portrait of the future. So the first is that Abraham is a type of a certain king who would make a marriage for his son. And we find this in Matthew 22, 2. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his heaven. So you see how Abraham and the kingdom of heaven are, are together? That king is God the Father making a marriage for God the Son. That's the first type. And the second type is the unnamed servant as a type of the Holy Spirit who does not speak of himself, but takes the things of the bridegroom into which to win the bride. John 16, 13 through 14 says, Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you in all truth, for he will speak not of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, and this is Jesus speaking, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. You see the comparison between the servant and the way the Holy Spirit is operating? Now the third is the servant as a type of the Spirit as enriching the bride with the bridegroom's gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, 7-11 But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another diverse kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit dividing unto every man severally as he will. So those are the gifts of the Spirit. It's the same as the servant is giving gifts to the bride on behalf of Christ and the Father and the bridegroom. So then we also see the servant as a type of the Spirit bringing the bride to the meeting with the bridegroom. Romans 8, 11 says, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell on you, he that raised up Christ from the dead, shall also quicken your mortal bodies by His Spirit that dwelleth in you. So the Holy Spirit's going to be responsible for quickening our dead bodies and taking them to meet Christ. And so it's similar to what the servant is doing in bringing Rebekah to meet the bridegroom, which is Isaac. See the type and the picture of that? And then the fifth is Rebekah as a type of the church or the ecclesia, the called-out virgin bride of Christ. 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, For I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And again, you see the comparison here. So the sixth is Isaac as a type of the bridegroom, whom the bride has not, not seen, or having not seen. Loves through the testimony of the unnamed spirit. And again, 1 Peter 1.8, Whom having not seen ye love in whom? Though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. We haven't seen Christ yet, but we, have, we rejoice in hope. And here you have Rebecca, not having seen Isaac, is going to rejoice in getting to see him, right? So it's a picture of the bride coming to Christ. And the seventh is Isaac as a type of the bridegroom who goes out to meet and receive his bride. Then we come to 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17, one of my favorite expectations in the Bible, right? 
Uh, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Now in the next couple of weeks, we're going to study about Isaac running out uh, to meet his bride, right? And so here we have Christ coming to get us and us going to the, it's totally, it's the rapture. Uh, and uh, it is uh, us uh, going up to meet Christ. So as we go through this whole story over the next several weeks, I want you to keep all those types in mind, okay? I know you'll remember all seven of them as we go through, right? Now, I will help you out and I will remind you as we get going through them. But I wanted you to see the wondrous uh, portraits that are in this chapter, right? And, and so many times we read a story like this and we just don't even think about the portraits uh, that uh, God is showing us in his word of the things to come. Now, again, I'll mention them, but this is truly a story with beautiful imagery and promise for the believer. So let's start in with a story, 11 through 14. We'll see how far I get. Uh, since we uh, deviated from the schedule here this morning, I may not get all the way done, but we'll see here. All right. 11 through 14, it says, And he made his camels to kneel down without the city by a well of water at the time of the evening, even the time that women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto my master Abraham. Excuse me, just say. I know I got a lot of verses to read, so I'm going to get my throat <coughs> lubricated up here, all right? Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water. And let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, Let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. Now when he, the servant arrived at his destination, the servant prayed. For all good work must be done in the fellowship with God, right? And then he proposed a practical test. Now, I'm not one in favor of uh, giving God tests, okay? Uh, but here was a practical test for him to give. As the women came to the well, he would ask for a drink. And a girl who offered to draw water, not just for him, but for his camels also, would be the God-chosen one that he was supposed to have. Now, this was no small test. A camel will drink about five gallons of water, and the servant had ten of them. And so to draw some 50 gallons of water and empty them into the trough in the heat of that climate was a pretty big task, especially for a young girl, right? Now, I guess they didn't really know about the custom of being gentlemen back then, right? Obviously not, right? Yeah. So, in other words, the servant calls upon the Lord to lead him in making the right choice. And he says, listen, Lord, the daughters of the men of the city are going to be coming out. And I don't know which one uh, to choose. And it is just left up to me to pick one. I pray that the one that I pick might be the one that you pick. And that was a wise servant, right? So, verses 15 and 16 says, And it came to pass, before he had done speaking, 
And behold, Rebekah came out, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. And the damsel was very fair to look upon, a virgin, neither had any man known her, and she went down to the well and filled her pitcher and came up. So here we're told that even before the servant had stopped speaking and praying to God, along comes Rebekah, who is described as being very fair to look upon, which means that not only can she work hard, but that she's beautiful to look upon as well. That's just like my wife, right? Yeah. Verses 17 <laughs> through 21. I get myself distracted, right? Uh, and the servant ran to meet her and said, Let me, I pray thee, drink a little water of my pitcher, of thy pitcher. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him drink. And when she had done giving him drink, she said, I will draw water for thy camels also until they have done drinking. And she hasted and emptied her pitcher into the trough and ran again into the well to draw water and drew for all of his camels. And a man wondering at her held his peace to wit whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. So the servant is just standing there in amazement, right? And I can just imagine he's wondering whether or not this is the girl and whether God is leading or not. I mean, the very first girl that comes along passes the test, right? Uh, and so, God, are they all going to be that way? Or, or is this the one, right? Uh, and it certainly is amazing what happens when we can sit back and watch God working and leading in our lives, right? When we are patient upon the Lord. Verses 22 through 26 says, And it came to pass, as the camels had done drinking, that the man took a golden earring of half a shekel weight and two bracelets for her hands of ten shekels weight of gold, and said, Whose daughter art thou? Tell me, I pray thee, is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge in? I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which she bare unto Nahor. She said, Moreover unto him, we have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge in. And the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord. I noticed that in response to the question of whose daughter she was, the girl replied, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, which uh, she bare unto Nahor. Now, Nahor is a brother of Abraham. Is a brother of Abraham. And then God tells us that the man bowed down his head and worshiped the Lord. So the servant is seeing the hand of God in this. Now, ain't it just wonderful when God is leading and guiding your life? In verse 27, says, And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left, uh, who hath not left destitute, my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. Now, notice that the servant says, I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. That's just a great statement here. I being in the way, the Lord led me. The Lord leads those who are in the way. That is, those who are in his way who are wait, uh, wanting to be led, who will be led of him, and who will do what he wants done, God can lead a willing heart. Is, you, is your heart willing to let God lead you? So this was no chance meeting. This was a meeting planned in heaven and now taking place on earth. Rebecca listened as a servant made his claims for the cause of Isaac. And woven into the fabric of this beautiful human story are the threads of an even greater story. 
we see the coming of the Holy Spirit in the world with a great mission to win and to woo the heart of the lost to the heart of the beloved Son of God. And only rarely does the Holy Spirit speak of himself. His great mission is to praise the Son and to tell the love of the Father and his grace and mercy. His great task is to seek out those who will become the bride of Christ. It is amazing how the Holy Spirit takes advantage of life's ordinary circumstances, using them to accomplish his task. He never forces, never violates human will, never overwhelms, never uses weird and uncanny means to conquer the soul. Ordinary things happen, a visit here, an envelope of cash in help when it is needed, right? A book is passed by a friend, and all the time the Holy Spirit is at work until at last the gospel is presented and the hour of decision comes. And it was the servant's way with Rebecca, and it is the Spirit's way with a lost soul. Amen? Amen. Beautiful story, isn't it? Beautiful story. Full, full of pictures. I mean, just amazing how many pictures are in, in this story, right? 